Well, thank you, Martin, very much for that warm welcome, and indeed for the warm welcome that Judith and I have had since we arrived rather early this morning, because London traffic wasn't anywhere near as bad as we thought it might be. It's good to be here and a genuine honour to be part of such a good occasion, a celebration of an anniversary of a very significant church in the Methodist story and indeed in the church in Britain's story and through various connections all around the world. It's good to be here and thank you so much for that invitation. Well, I have over the years done quite a number of church anniversaries. And I suppose deep inside me, I'm quite a lazy fellow, so I tend to use my favorite church anniversary sermon. And to be honest, it's rather good. I say that quite modestly. <laughs> it goes something like this. I will say and look around, and today it's easy to do, and I say, what a place. 104 years since this was built, and what a part this has played in our lives as a nation, and as individuals here, in this place, we have heard the gospel preached. And in this place, lives have been saved. In this place, we've had our weddings and rejoiced in the love that God gives human beings. In this place, we baptized our babies. Anybody's here being baptized here? And in this place, we've buried those who we have lost. This place matters. It stands solid in the center of London, the center of our nation. It stands solidly for the gospel. If I was preaching that sermon, that's the sort of thing I would say. <laughs> but then because it is a rather a good sermon, though I say it myself, I twist it and I say place matters, but people matter more. And as you look around here, people from all the nations, from all around the world, and over the years, we have been a great congregation here. We have sung, and we have prayed, and we have listened, and we've responded, because people matter more than buildings. And this is not only 104 years of a fellowship's building, but of a fellowship and you are part of a long history of people who have witnessed here and before them in various places around the world and around this country. But though it is a good sermon, and you've got to admit there's the makings of a good sermon there. I think you'll have to admit that with me. I, I get weary of it because I keep on doing it everywhere. So over the last 10 or so years, I've always preached on the lectionary. And I looked at the readings and I thought, this is a theological expression that Martin will explain later. Uek. <laughs> In my version of the scriptures, it has, how lonely lies the city once so full of people. And you think, oh, dear me. And yes, I want to suggest today that we won't stay here, but lamentation. Grief and sadness is very much part of what churches are also about. It isn't just giving glory and giving praise and articulating faith and hope, though we do that and we will do that. 
Sometimes, as Jesus, we need to stop and be, feel the sadness of the city and lament. And over the last few weeks, poor people at Epsom Methodist Church, where I'm the minister, as we've been going through Jeremiah, boy, we are looking forward to Advent. As we say, how lonely is the city, once so full of people. Well, of course, this is talking of Judah. It's a long time ago, thousands of years ago. It is the time when the people had fallen out with their God. And in Jeremiah, it talks about that falling out as if it was a marriage broken by infidelity. All the dishonesty and all the pain and all the suffering and all the lying and all the agony that's caught up when we get it wrong in our loving relationships. Jeremiah says that's what it feels like for God. And as a consequence of that, at the very gates of the city, the walls themselves tremble and Judah is defeated by Babylon and the leadership and the young people are taken away into exile. And they are grief-stricken, overwhelmed, bitter tears are spoken and lamentations captures the intense suffering of exile, of human failure, of making a mistake, of getting it wrong. How lonely is the city? And it's not, it's too risky, it's not right to simply take a parallel from thousands of years ago and plonk it on today, but it's not difficult to resonate, occasionally at least, with lamentation. It's not difficult to feel the suffering of the city, to mourn it and feel the grief. It's not difficult to look at the church and say, how lonely, when once this place was full of people. And to feel on an occasion like this, not only how good it is to be together, but once this place was full, and we feel that. Once this place was rocking to the rafters, they will tell you. Once this place was full, and now we feel just a tinge of loneliness. But the real message of both Jeremiah in the last few weeks, but of lamentation, isn't just a common human feeling of loss, of a church that has been in decline since the end of the 19th century, and certainly all my life, at least in the West, and certainly in Great Britain. It's not just the lament, but how these good people interpreted it. What sense do they make of their bitter tears and their sadness? And the interesting thing, the challenging thing for me, is they make sense of it as if all of it happened within the will of God. They don't turn around and say, God has deserted us, or God is ineffectual. They don't say to themselves, it is all over, there is no hope. In fact, though we mustn't come to it too quickly, in Lamentations 3, it talks about a God whose justice and peace and whose righteousness, whose kindness and whose goodness is new every morning. No, even in their bitterness and sadness, 
God is real. You see, the people then, all those years ago, were not faithless in their analysis. They were trusting. They were not atheist in their understanding of the decline of their important places and their faithful um, activities. They were godly. And I wonder, for me at least, if that isn't the real challenge here. What sense do we make of our lamentations? How do we understand the feeling of a church that has been in decline, that has lost its status in the countries, in this country? How do we make sense of a city that is lonely? Not because the church is empty, but because they've lost God. What sense do we make of that? It is all too tempting, and I struggle with this, to make sense of it all in purely secular terms. There is a phrase that troubles me, and that is to be functionally an atheist. To say as I do and live by and live on the fact that I believe in God, and I love singing with a bunch of Methodists the word consubstantial, co-eternal, and wondering if we ought to have a quiz about what the words mean. I believe the right stuff, but I wonder sometimes whether I function on the basis that it isn't true. Functional atheism, a product of people who understand their situations in purely secular terms. So we look at the decline of the church and we feel ashamed and we feel challenged and we wonder and we wonder if only we had tried harder. Why? Once in this church, you had preachers who could really preach, and then they filled it. My mother told me when she heard I was coming here with some skepticism, I came to hear Sangster preach, and we had to queue up outside. Oh dear, I thought. They tell me the same at Epsom Methodist Church that on Christmas Eve, Donald English used to preach, and he had to get there an hour early to get a seat. We had 78 this Christmas Eve. Oh dear. If only the preachers could preach. If only the organists could organ. If only the congregationalists could cong. If only we were the kind of people our mothers and fathers in faith were, then it would be all right. If only the church were full. But we need to hear what lamentation says. You see, their great sadness isn't the empty city, but the exiled people. The city stands for people whose hearts have been broken because they're not there anymore. They do not look around and say, God's left us and deserted us because we're no good. They say, God has brought this upon us because God loves us, they go on to say. This is a consequence of a loving and present God. Lamentations is a profoundly theological understanding of what has gone wrong. Lamentations is not just about the sense of sadness and bitterness. It is about the sense of restoration and forgiveness. I wonder this. I wonder if underneath it all, that is actually what our struggle is too. I wonder if what makes us sad 
<coughs> Can I make this work? Thank you. I wonder if what makes us sad is not that the city is empty, but that the people are not here. Do you see the difference? It's that people do not know the Jesus we love. It's because people haven't found the hope we have found in Christ. That is our true lamentation. We get all anxious and neurotic about the church and we wonder what we can do better. Can we jazz it up? Can we smarten the ministry up a little bit? Can we have better programs, more frequent programs? Can we somehow attract people? But actually that isn't the issue. The issue is the sadness that people go through their lives with the same struggles that we have, with the same temptations we endure, with the same sadness we grieve, and they have no Christ. How can they bear it? One of my ancestors was a Puritan preacher, and it used to say of him that if he saw somebody over the side of the road who did not know Jesus, his heart was broken. I wonder if in our sadness for the state of the church, we have got our sadness mixed up. Don't worry about here. This is a fine place. Let us instead weep over the city because they do not know Jesus. But I wonder this too. We worry that we are people of small faith, that we don't really believe in God enough. And I wonder if that's our problem. You see, I think we do believe in God. Some days at least. Like Wesley, we would sing, My heart is full of Christ and longs its glorious matter to declare. My ready tongue makes haste to sing the glories of my God and King. Some days we're full of it. We know God is there. When the drums come in this morning in the middle of a magnificent hymn and the organ lifts us and the voices are raised, our hearts are alive with the voices of all the angels in heaven. Of course we believe in God. We have another worry. It runs through scripture and lamentation struggles with it. We're not sure God still believes in us. We're not sure that God still has a place for the Christian family in a secular age. What difference can we make? God can't mean us. And scripture is full of that argument of Abraham who cannot actually believe that he's age. He could be the founder of a nation. Of Sarah who laughs out loud. Of Moses, who can't speak properly, yet has to speak to a pharaoh. Pharaoh, Of my favorite Gideon, down a hole with no hope, threshing wheat, when an angel says to him, Thou man of valor, and he says, Oh yeah. Of Isaiah in the temple, in the year that King Uzziah died, when the angels fill the place with glory, but he is overwhelmed with his sense of shame and guilt of Jeremiah, who says, but I'm only a young boy. 
of Mary, who says, how can this be? I'm just a young person of Peter and of Matthew and of Paul and of Wesley and no doubt each one of us at different times. You can't mean me. I'm not clever enough, good enough, trained enough. I'm too old, too young, too busy, too poorly. Our struggle with faith is not so often that we find it difficult to believe in God. But in our decline, we've wondered whether God still believes in us. And I wonder, lastly, if our struggle is not with the church being successful or the church being full, but actually whether the church has any sort of purpose at all. I wonder what difference we long for the church to make. You see, in Lamentations, they look forward to restoration. In the bitterness and the sadness of exile, which is contained within the almighty sovereign will of God, they look forward to the time when once again the city will be full. But it's not the fullness of the city that is the joy. It's the fact that once again they will be right with God and the festivals will be kept. I wonder whether the struggle for faith that we have is this, that we're not sure God can make a difference in our lives, to heal us and mend us and forgive us and sort us out in our marriages and in our workplace and in our sickness and in our sadness. I wonder if we're struggling to believe that the sovereign God is still God at all. And I wonder if we can believe that in the muddle of our world, with the outrageous injustices, with the poverty and the sickness, with the violence, with the terrible stories of war and rumor of war that fills us with horror night by night on the news, we wonder whether God can actually hack it still. We wonder whether God can change anything at all. Well, this is my church anniversary encouragement. God is God. And that's not going to stop. God is sovereign, even of our sadness. God is still believing in us. And he looks at us, as he said to Jeremiah, and says, don't say only. He looks at us, as he said to Gideon, and say, go in your strength. He looks, as he did to Mary, when he co-opted her in the greatest work of salvation. He looks at you, calling you to be generous with your money, calling you to be courageous in your ministry, calling you to be preachers and stewards and evangelists and youth workers and pastoral carers and administrators and out there witnessing to family and friend and neighbor and enemy who's calling you today because Church anniversaries tell us that place matters, but actually people matter more. For the evangel today, the good news is God is God, and God still believes in you, and with you can change the world. <laughs>